I'm Danielle Levine, and you're listening to The Future Effect. The Future Effect is a weekly podcast bringing you the latest news and updates in Florida's child welfare system. This podcast is brought to you by the Future Effect Political Committee, a bipartisan effort to give Floridians an opportunity to get involved in the legislative and political process on behalf of Florida's children. So we are here with the lovely Jennifer Biro, who is the Program Director for Pathways to Home here in Central Florida, which helps families who are experiencing homelessness find stable housing and get back on track. So Jen, thanks so much for coming out and talking to us today. Thank you so much for having me. So, Pathways to Home has played such a critical role in our community since 2009. Is that when the program first started? Yes, it was. Do you mind speaking a little bit about what was the what was the inspiration to really get the program underway? Can you talk about how the recession was affecting Seminole County and how that led to the creation of the program? Sure. Um, the recession did impact families um, across, you know, across all of Central Florida, of course, and um, it was spotlighted. The impact of that was spotlighted by 60 Minutes on um, our Seminole County public school system and the number of families that the number of children that were um, experiencing homelessness as a result of that. And so at that time, there was a collaborative um advocacy group called the Seminole County Children's Cabinet that took a look at that um, that problem and decided to tackle it on. And um, so they came up with Pathways to Home. And at that time, Central Florida, well, CBC of Central Florida um, stepped up to be the lead agency in helping that um, to form the Pathways to Home program to end homelessness for students. And when Pathways first started, wasn't the statistic that Seminole County had the highest rate of child homelessness throughout the entire country? I believe so, yes. Do you know, Joe? Yeah, so um, when that 60 Minutes story came out, it was, it was we were definitely one of the highest. I don't remember if we were the highest, but I know that we were certainly one of the highest in the country. Um, and as a result of that, um, as Jen just mentioned, the Children's Cabinet decided to step in and... Um, You know, it's really an important uh, note to make that the Children's Cabinet um, is is made up of a number of different service organizations. So it's the Sheriff's Office, it's Child Welfare Organizations, it's uh, groups like uh, Children's Rescue Network, it's um, the Guardian Ad Litem, it's healthcare organizations, it's all of these different groups that came together recognizing how significant the problem was. Um, and really trying to find a solution. And, you know, it really, Pathways took root in some very fertile soil um, because there was a lot of willingness to participate on the part of the community, a lot of important players to really get behind a program like mm-hmm. this. And so, yeah, we were definitely one of the worst, if not the worst, yeah. uh, in the country at the time. Yeah. Do you know why Seminole County was so affected more than other areas in our region? Um, I, I, I think it... it there was a lot of discussion at the time as to why people didn't realize it. And it was really because I think a lot of people thought Seminole County was kind of untouchable from that type of issue. Mm -hmm. Seminole County is known as a slightly more affluent County. Uh, It's known for, um, you know, it's great public school system. It's known for uh, these really wonderful communities. It's known for low crime rates. It's known for good job creation. 
Um, and so when people heard about it for the first time, like really heard mm-hmm. that there's a genuine homelessness problem and that there's a lot of children that are really struggling and families that are really struggling in Seminole County, there were a lot of people that couldn't even believe it because mm-hmm. you don't really see it, yeah. right? You don't, you don't ever really see it like you do in maybe a big city. Right. Um, and so I think part of the, the, the reason why it became such a problem is because people didn't really acknowledge that it was a problem to begin with. Mm-hmm. And when it was small and maybe we could have nipped it in the bud, mm-hmm. um, we didn't because we just didn't think it was something that would happen in Seminole County. And so yeah. over time, people have learned that it doesn't matter. It happens in every demographic, every income stratosphere or every income strata. Um, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter who you are or where you live. Poverty can reach you. Right. Um, you know, and, and so many families um, in this country, white, black, Hispanic, older, younger, it doesn't matter. They live paycheck to paycheck. Mm-hmm. And one, one bad incident, one healthcare problem, one car accident, one you know, loss of a job in a family can really put that family on a, on a different path, which is why um, programs like Pathways are so important because they really help stabilize families and get them back up and running. Yeah, I think one of the things I was reading, the report was out about this last year, is that 40% of families can't afford a $400 emergency, and that would completely devastate their finances and put them off track. Is that something, Jen, both that and also just that, you know, poverty affects everyone of every racial, ethnic, religious background, are you also seeing that diversity in those who are applying to the program as well? Because a lot of times the face of homelessness that people think of is, and just to, you know, as cross-eyed people tend to say, you know, like that dirty, impoverished man on the corner, or, you know, thinking it's a certain minority population. But that's not true, and that's not what you all are seeing. It, it is really not what we're seeing. Um, what we're seeing more is just your everyday person. A lot of them um, are employed. They're just struggling to make it. Either they're underemployed, or meaning that they're not making a high enough wage to afford housing, or they're unemployed um, for whatever reason. But they're people that we really rub shoulders with every day. I mean, it's people that are serving you food at the restaurant. It's people that are in the office, you know, sending you emails. I mean, they're really your everyday people um, that you really don't suspect are homeless. They do a really good job hiding it. A lot of them um, are living in their cars. They're in parking lots of of businesses that are open 24 hours, and they're able to go in and wash up when business Mm -hmm. is slow. Um, but they do a really good job hiding it. But it is much more common than what people realize, but definitely not as noticeable as someone that's on the street corner. You know, Jen, you've worked in and around this program in this field for a long time. now. Can you talk about how it impacts you personally every day working with these families? How the, the, like just the, the general emotions that you feel every day, the things that you see every day, not in a clinical sense, just in a, like in a really personal sense. Because so much of what happens in social services and really specifically in child welfare and family services is very emotional, right? I mean, we have caseworkers that get really invested in the lives of the children that they serve. We have people um, you know, across the industry that are really, really committed to children and families that face all these difficulties. And, and this is a very unique set of circumstances because you've got people that, in many cases, the, their family is strong, but they've fallen on hard times and they just, they're trying to catch a break so that they can get back on the right track. And it's, I'm sure, sometimes frustrating for you 
to see some of these things and want to be able to do so much more. And sometimes our hands are tied as a system, et cetera, et cetera. So can you talk about just your own personal kind of investment, your own personal feelings um, in the system, you know, in, in your clients, in, in the people that we all are, are trying to serve? Sure. Um, it is a challenge and it, it is um, both rewarding and frustrating at the same same time. It's rewarding in the sense that we are um, putting things in place that are assisting families and ending homelessness for, for families so kids don't have to live in cars, so they don't have mm -hmm. to, to go to school with dirty clothes and be picked at or, or you know, trying to do their homework on a dashboard or you mm -hmm. know, um, in a hotel room. It, it's rewarding in, in that we're ending that trauma for the for the kids. The the challenges with it is being in my office, hearing people in the lobby area, hearing my staff on the phone, talking to people that are caught in the system where there are much many more people in need than there are mm -hmm. resources to meet those needs. And our criteria for the program is tight because the, the those limited those resources are limited. Right. So we're only able to help a certain group of people that are of highest need because those resources are limited. And so there's there's people that call every day, you know, I have nowhere to go. I have, don't know what to do. I, you know, my kids aren't handling this well. They're acting out. You know, this is just not working. What can we do? Yeah. And Pathways to Home is, is, while they're not, we're not an emergency shelter, we can certainly provide resources in the community, but even those resources are stretched. So it is very frustrating. Um, to not be able to help everybody that comes to the doors. But we do have a very um, lucrative pool of resources in the community that um, that we can tap into. You know, they are stretched, but they are available. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we are um, able to do what we can in connecting the families to, to resources and getting them started in our process so we can get them housing services as quickly as possible. Yeah, I think that's one awesome. of the notable things about Pathways to Home is that specifically the population that you all work with are families. They're, and we all were the first ones in this area that were specifically focused on family homelessness instead of chronic homelessness and our veterans, which had been the, the you know, just the general topic of conversation in years past. Is there any reason that you can think of why that conversation might starting to be shift to consider our families? Yeah, I, I think there has been a lot of focus in the past on the chronic homelessness and veterans. And, you know, I don't want to minimize those areas, but really the number of people that um, those types of programs are able to help is very limited. The rapid rehousing in terms of housing families as quickly as possible, that particular model does serve a much broader um, group of people. It's your everyday folks that are experiencing the homelessness, you know, so it's able to touch more lives and more families than what the chronic and the veterans are. So can you explain a little more about rapid rehousing and kind of the philosophy behind that model? Sure. It is um, exactly that. It's rapidly rehousing families. It's ending homelessness for families as quickly as possible. And so what it is, it's a six to nine month service delivery model where um, you bring the family in and you immediately start to try and find housing. The aim, the national, um, the national goal is to house a family within 30 days, which is a challenge in itself. Right, yeah. um, but the aim is to have 30 days of searching for housing 
and then four months, four, uh, four to five months of financial assistance to help them um, get on their feet financially and giving them case management services to help them to sustain that housing long term. Okay. And then several months of, of support um, from their case managers and making sure that they're stabilizing before we close out their case. So rapid rehousing is, is rapidly housing families to end the homelessness and then helping them to stabilize so they can maintain that housing on their own long term. And so that's the current method that you all use when you're working with our families? Predominantly, yes. Okay, yes. Um, so thinking about that, has that... Are there any parts of Rapid Bay Housing that has posed its own difficulties? Because before, I know that there's been some programs where, you know, you had to fulfill this requirement, that requirement. It was very, very hands-on in the way that they were helping to manage families as they were navigating through their difficulties. Do you think having the Rapid Bay Housing where we're kind of eliminating those barriers and saying, no, having you be stable with the shelter is our number one priority, and we'll be doing that no matter what, is the better method of being able to help people evolve out of their situation, if that makes sense. Yeah, it, it, rapid rehousing in itself has been a very effective model. Um, the challenges that we're realizing with it now is that the families that are coming to us have much more complex needs mm -hmm. than what rapid rehousing was really designed to handle. Okay. And so we're, we have an issue where the families are staying with us much longer because of mental health concerns, um, substance abuse issues. Um, you know, some the uh, they're just underemployed. They just can't make enough money to make it. So it's taking them much longer to stabilize it housing wise than what it has in the past. And so rapid rehousing instead of being a six to nine month program has become more like a twelve to eight to eighteen month program because of the complexity of the family's needs. Also, um, there is an affordable housing issue, and so yeah. that is um, definitely contributing to the length of time families are in the rapid rehousing program because they're not able to find housing and secure that within 30 days. It's taking more like 90 and um, sometimes a little longer depending on the family. So um, that is why this, this bill is so important because it's helping us to provide those services longer, to stay with the family longer, and giving them more opportunity to stabilize. I mean, absolutely. Even just speaking from my own experience when, you know, my husband and I recently got married and so we were trying to decide where we're going to live apartment wise, even the cheapest two bedrooms at this point were starting to run 1500 or so. And so that's just the two of us on nonprofit budgets. And so obviously, you know, that makes it a little more limited. But then thinking about we have people that are supporting whole families trying to fit that into their budget and just if we were stressed by that, not even being able to imagine what it's like when you're also the caregiver and, you know, the person who's providing support for your entire household. And so I think one of the things that really frustrates me about the conversation about homelessness is sometimes people have the thought process of, well, they did this to themselves, just get another job. But it's not that easy. And for those people that think that, like, what is the best way you would kind of dispel that notion? Well, I mean, it's, I think it's, it's easy for people to judge people that are in homeless situations, but um, the reality of the matter is most of the families um, are on a minimum wage or low wage job that if it's a struggle for us as professionals mm -hmm. to make it on a two income um, household, how much more challenging is it for a single mom with children to right. make it on a minimum wage or low wage um, job? So. You know, I think it's it's definitely an education issue to um, 
so that families, people aren't as quick to pass judgment on people that have experienced it because really homelessness does affect everybody. Like Joe mentioned earlier, I mean, under any right circumstance, we'd all be homeless. And so, yeah, it definitely um, is an educational issue. And people just aren't aware. So I know you were speaking about mental illness a little earlier. Are the, what are some other the main causes that you see of the reasons that people are needing to call into the program and why they've fallen on hard times? Um, we've seen a mix. I mean, we've seen um, a mix of causes. Some of it, like Joe mentioned, is a job loss. Sometimes um, a car accident, you know, could derail the family. Um, it's, it's the main breadwinner in the family leaves the household, whether it be through divorce or domestic violence or, you know, something like that. Um, and quite honestly, this might not be a politically correct thing to say, but we do have generational people that generationally go from program to program with the intent of never becoming self-sufficient. And, you know, unfortunately, that's something that is a reality for us, too, is as a program trying to encourage them to break that cycle. Right. And what can we do to help them see that they can change it for their kids mm -hmm. and get themselves on a, a more, a better path? Because deep down, they really want to be independent. You know, yeah. it's just they're afraid to because they're afraid of losing everything if they're successful. So why try if I'm just going to lose it anyway? And so, yeah, there's a lot of different barriers, a lot of different variables to it. Does the, um, the opioid crisis is a, is a real problem now? I mean, it's, it's been a real problem for quite a while, but it's really come on to, um, you know, society's main stage now. I mean, across the country, you've got sheriffs and uh, attorneys general and you know, a, a number of uh, folks in Congress that are really trying to address the issue. How much does drug addiction, substance abuse, opioids, those types of things, how much do they play into the, the number of participants that they see or that we see in these programs? It definitely affects it. I mean, for, for us as a program, um, it's not a deal breaker for enrolling them. I mean, it, we follow a housing first principle where there are no barriers as long as they meet the income guidelines and, you know, the HUD definition of homelessness, you know, we will serve them. But definitely um, there are quite a few families that are experiencing homelessness because of the, the opioid crisis. And so when, they're, when they go into a program uh, like Pathways, do we require that they take drug counseling? Do, do we require that they're invo involved in those programs? We don't require it. Everything is voluntary, but our case management team works very closely with the families and encourages them to to get the help that they need to to be able to care for their kids and their families in the best way possible. So it's voluntary for them to take like drug like drug counseling and things along those lines. It is. And why why is that? That sounds that sounds counterintuitive. So why is that? That's part of the the housing first model. Is you just take everyone in and address the problems later. The, the whole goal is to end the homelessness first and then <clears throat> let's have those discussions on right. the different things that need to be addressed, whether it be mental health, drug issues, you know, whatever the case may and be. And where does that model come from, the Housing First model? Who, like, where does, does that originate with like an organization or is there a government body that's responsible for that or where does that come from? I know that it's, it's a model that HUD, I think, I believe has passed on. I think that's where it has originated, but I, I believe so. Um, but the Homeless Services Network, that's one of our requirements of the homeless, uh, as a um, 
collaborative partner with Homeless Services Network is that we follow that model. Same with local government agencies. I think that's that's probably one of the most surprising things, and, and to people listening, it's probably one of the most surprising things is that a lot of the services that are provided as wraparound services are intended to help alleviate the cause of homelessness are not necessarily required. Um, and I was actually really surprised to find uh, uh, at a conference that I attended last year that there's a number of those types of things that aren't necessarily required for the families. Um, because I think that that's one of those things that um, also plays into the way that people think about the programs and the way that people think about, you know, people that are homeless and that are joining these programs or entering these programs. Um, you know, because I think there's an expectation that, you know, if you're receiving support, people want you to give it your all, right? And like do as much as you can to kind of solve that problem and get back to, a, you know, a, a good uh, path. And so I just... Uh, I just thought it was really strange. It's kind of counterintuitive in a lot of ways. I feel like it makes sense, too. You know, if you aren't able to have your basic needs met, it's so hard to look beyond that to focus on some of those, like, bigger picture oh, sure. causes. Sure. Like, I can't even focus <clears throat> on anything when I'm hungry. Not even, like, starving. Just, like, when I'm hungry. I'm super cranky. I can't focus. Yeah, I know. I get your text messages. <laughs> <laughs> so just imagining someone being like, no, before you help you, you have to get your whole life together. When already, yeah. you know, you're just... Right. Well, I think I think I think my point is that the the, the challenge I think we, we face image wise in a lot of these programs and and realistically in service in the actual provision of the services is the fact that even after we get the housing taken care of, they're not necessarily required to do some of those things. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of where there's a, a, a hotter discussion about you know who's paying for it yeah. and what are the requirements for these types of programs because you know you've got people like Jen. Who are hustling to make sure that these folks have a place to stay and that, mm -hmm. that they're getting access to the right, you know, job skill training and the yeah. right addiction counseling and all these different types of things to help them get back on their feet. And they theoretically don't have to do it, which is a little bit, mm -hmm. I think, a little bit okay. more concerning to some folks. Yeah. And I think that's part of the public policy debate that we have to have, which is, you know, how far do we go? in, you know, supporting folks and making things mandatory versus how much freedom do we give people to make those choices for themselves and for their families. How far do you think we so, should go? <clears throat> well, I mean, I think if there's something that's identified as, I mean, and that's a great question because, you know, we work on public policy, right? And right. so, um, you know, I think if there's something that's identified as a problem, I mean, if, if drug addiction is a clear problem in a family and it's what's caused that family or contributed to that family's homelessness, to say that, you know, we're going to get you housed and then, we, you know, you don't really have to do drug training, I think is really counterintuitive. I mean, because that's the cause. Mm -hmm. And so I think, um, you know, with the, the rights and privileges and the benefits of these programs come some responsibility for folks to have to participate in some of those things to help really get themselves course corrected. Okay. Um, you know, I mean, and I, it's a fine line. It's a, it's a, it's a, it, I know it's a knife's edge that we all run on because I mean, you, you want to be sympathetic to folks and you want to try and give people as much of a break as possible. And you, you, you don't want families homeless. You don't want kids sleeping mm -hmm. in cars. That's the most, right, you know, it's, right. it's like totally egregious that in this country, anybody would be in that position. Um, but there's also, you know, a level of responsibility because resources are so limited that yeah. we have to make them work. We have to make them effective. And if we just if we just keep throwing good money after bad, at a certain point, it becomes counterproductive, right? Because then you're not helping families that you could because you're helping mm -hmm. a family that you are, but maybe they're not participating in some of their things. And so it's a really difficult. I don't envy your job. I think you're absolutely a hero for the work that you do because the people that uh, you serve 
they are really in need of an angel. And I think you and, and your team and um, and I say it about our caseworkers in the industry all the time in, in child welfare. I mean, they go into places that most people would not go into at times of night that most yeah. people would not go. Um, and they, you know, interact with families that are in a really tough situation. And the fact that you all are able to do it is really um, inspiring. I mean, we get to have these high level conversations about policy, but you're actually on the ground yeah. doing that work. And it's, it's really genuinely very admirable um, that you are so committed to it. So, I mean, it really is really intense, but, um, but yeah, I just think we need to be more effective. I think we, we need to keep working towards being effective and giving staff, people like Jennifer, um, as much, as many tools as possible, yeah, keep, keep the success going, you know? And we do, we do have boundaries that we put into place too. I mean, it's not, it's not a free ride for our families, sure. you know, that we do hold them accountable mm -hmm. to to making um, progress on their service plan goals and making sure that they are taking necessary steps to stability and, you know, long-term stability. Yeah. So while we can't force their hand, you know, the, the choices are still theirs to make, we still have um, those accountability and measures in place to make sure that they're making progress. So I'm sure all of this work for you can just be absolutely emotionally and mentally exhausting at times. So what does self-care look like to keep you, you know, rejuvenated and ready to continue to carry out your mission? Well, um, it takes it takes on a lot of a lot of self-care takes on a lot of different. Um, I do it in a lot of different ways. Um, first, I, you know. Embrace Families is phenomenal as an organization with, with making sure that staff is supported and taking whatever steps they need towards self-care. They encourage us to, to take those vacation days um, that we have accumulated and not let them roll over, but, you know, to take them, um, to take them as needed, to spend time with your family. Um, but I'm, on a personal level, I'm a praying person. I spend a lot of time in prayer, not only for myself personally, but also for our program. Mm -hmm. um, I also um, I spend time with my families. I'm doing better with disconnecting in the evenings and weekends. Yeah, that's always <laughs> and, a trouble. You know, trying to, to, you know, not um, go to my phone every time it dings, you know. It's, yeah. I'm just like OCD that way. If it dings, I have to go look at it. <laughs> no, put your phone on silent when you leave. Cell phones are like, ugh. They connect us. They're like our leash to work with yeah. for like the rest of our lives. Yeah, they are. But um, <clears throat> so I'm doing better with that in terms of you know making sure I take time to do those things that I enjoy. Yeah. Um, also, but yeah, I mean Pathways is always on the forefront of my mind. But um, yeah, just because the need is there. But well, that's because I mean, like I said it before, and I'll say it again. You know, you're owed many thanks because um, you run into a lot of people in this business that. Um, you know, are really committed to the work, but you have a real servant's heart. You really do. And um, in the in the time that I've uh, that I've worked with you, even um, on pathways and pathways issues, like you could tell how committed you are to the to the children and families, and that you really don't ever take a break because even when you do take a break, you're still thinking about them mm -hmm. and how you can improve their lives and how you can protect them and work with them. And, and so that's a that's a very special trait to have in social services and especially Absolutely. in this type of program um, because it's a you know it's these problems don't go away uh, and it's a twenty four hour job and you you're really committed to it so yeah I mean your entire staff is incredible like I was having lunch with Stacy a <clears throat> couple of probably a couple months ago 
And so she was just telling me how, you know, even if there's a student and it's in school and that kid gets an A on a test, you know, that mom will like take a photo of the test and send it over to Stacey and have her be part of the celebrations. And so the fact that your team members are like that involved in a family's success on such a small level, not just parents who are trying to get, you know, everything together and back on track, but also, you know, the littlest ones as well. I think that's really commendable. And so you guys are, I I, I always say that I could not be a case manager. I could not be involved on the front work just because I understand the workload that you all have. And sometimes the pressures that come with that from people who don't get it. And you just managed to do it with smiles and grace regardless. So my hat's off to you, lady. Thank you. Well, it's my team. I, I can't take the credit, really. I mean, it's it's easy for me to, to be in the back. But um, the, the ones on the front lines are really the ones that deserve the kudos. It, it is exhausting. And they, they do it well. And they do it because they love it. And they love our families and are, are committed to helping them. Um, achieve self-sufficiency, you know, to see a better tomorrow for them and their kids. So let's talk about some successes. What does success when it comes to families in the program look like? What does that mean for you all? Um, well, some would say that success means that they are self-sufficient. I mean, that certainly is the goal that when they leave the Pathways program that they are um, equipped to um, to manage everything on their own, you know, but Sometimes it's, it's those seeds that you plant, mm-hmm. you know, getting them to think, you know, especially for those that are generationally homeless, that um, that they've been taught through our case management team that they can make different choices and see a different future for their kids. And whether they, they acted on it or not, they at least know and they've been given the tools. Um, but also, I mean, we do have quite a few families that, that do self-sustain and they're, they're making it on their own. That's our greatest success. Those are the ones we celebrate the most, but we also celebrate those small successes too. Is there one family or one story that really stands out to you from your time working with the program? Sure. Um, we have a, a gentleman that was actually, um, he was contacted by the child welfare side of um, Embrace Families, the CBC side. And um, he became very abruptly, well, to, to his surprise, I shouldn't say abruptly, but to his surprise, he became the caretaker of his two young kids in his senior years. And so he um, was on a limited income and had quite a few challenges, or quite a few barriers to becoming self-sufficient, um, even to the point of his identification documents mm. in other states having the wrong names. And so um, it took a little, took us a little bit, but we were able to get all of that straightened out for him. We were able to get um, get him a um, a house where he's able to sustain long term. So not only is he um, his housing now stabilized, he's now building relationships with his kids that he might not have been able to build otherwise. So our team, along with the team in CBC, collaborated to make that a success for for um, for that family. So I have a question because you talked a little bit about having a child welfare side of what you all do. And so when it comes to how Pathways to Home is involved in the child welfare system, can you explain why why is there a relationship there and what's that connection? Okay. Um, We 
collectively as a family of companies and brace families agree that that no child should ever be removed from their home or you know to um be separated from their families due to homelessness and so whenever there's a family who is becomes involved in the child welfare system and homelessness is a factor we are collaborating to make sure that that particular need is met that that is not a factor in any any of that family's service mm -hmm. um, services and oftentimes the family has already achieved all of their their case plan goals and the only thing left that they have to do is secure stable housing for right. those kids to be reunified those are the ones that get us the most excited mm -hmm. you know i mean certainly we want to to prevent homelessness from ever occurring or um to be instrumental in in keeping the family together but when they're able to when it's already happened and we're yeah, yeah. able to step in and be instrumental to bring those kids home, that that's very re rewarding. But um, that's part of what we do in the collaboration is to reunify those kids when, when homelessness is a factor. And that's one of the things that I really love about working in the child welfare system that we do is hearing from our leadership, which I wholeheartedly agree with, that poverty should not be a reason that families are separated from their children. When they're there, they're active in their lives, they're trying to take care of them to the best of their abilities, right. but people are falling on hard times. And so when you're trying to figure out, am I gonna pay the light bill or am I gonna keep you know, our water running or am I going to eat today? You're doing the best that you can. And so it's finding out how we can support them. So that way, just because child separation should not be a factor there. And so one of the things I'm excited to talk about, which Joe and I will with Jen in the coming weeks, is that the Department of Health and Human Services has put out their annual report talking about uh, child welfare and the causes of it. And as you know, everyone who works in the system know, the vast majority of cases are just stemming from poverty and the effects on that. And so I'm just looking forward to diving with that a little further because I think that's something that people don't necessarily understand is that when you're coming into the child welfare system, Yes, there's always those egregious cases of abuse, which are really difficult, and we're doing everything that we can to make sure that child is safe and cared for. But a lot of it is just from not having the means to provide as much as you wish that you could. And so having programs like Pathways where you're able to focus on making sure that family is wrapped in services that go well beyond the program, whether that is, you know, talking about financial literacy or whether that is stable housing that we are working with so that they're able to afford it entirely on their own. By the time that they graduate the program, even just thinking from, you know, a financial standpoint and how much money that saves taxpayers as well, because foster care is expensive. And so being able to step in where we can before that happens is beneficial, not just to the families, which is absolutely huge, but also just society in general and being able to make sure that we're all able to use the resources that are available either more efficiently or to spread them a little more because they are, you know, unfortunately finite. And while we wish that we could throw money at every single situation that occurs, you know, we're, we're doing the best that we can to manage all of that. Um, so... I feel like this is a good time to talk about the legislation that we have going on yes. for Pathways and what we're trying to accomplish <clears throat> in the legislative session this year. So, yeah, so all these great things that we're talking about, uh, for better or worse, they actually uh, cost money. And in an effort to um, serve more families, State Representative David Smith has uh, gone ahead and filed House Bill 2337, 
Um, and it's actually already gone through its first committee of reference in the House of Representatives. It was unanimously approved. Uh, and so we were um, obviously very happy to see that because that means that more resources will be committed to um, you know, the Pathways Program. This particular bill allocates $500,000, almost $500,000, to children and families who are in the child welfare system and who are, or known to the child welfare system, and who are at risk of becoming homeless. So being in the child welfare system is already one challenge that yeah. that family faces. And so the whole point of Representative Smith's bill um, is to try and keep them from having homelessness be an additional challenge, an additional burden mm -hmm. towards getting their family back on the right track and protecting those children um, that we, you know, work so hard to protect. And, and Representative Smith has been really a champion for children, children and families' issues yeah. uh, in the State House of Representatives. He's just been a, a real fighter. And this is only his second session. He's a freshman. And this is only his second session in the, in the legislature. Um, and he learned a lot of valuable lessons last year, and he's really put those lessons to work. And he, he's really going to bat for the entire system. Like mm -hmm. He really believes that um, you know, in the community-based model, he really believes that uh, programs like Pathways are critical to the success of, you know, getting people off the streets, getting people into in, good jobs, mm -hmm. getting families stable again. Um, and he's been really, really good. And so we're really hopeful that he'll be able, he'll be successful with that bill. Um, and so it's, it's a, you know, it's a really specific population, but it's going to serve another 20, maybe 30 families. Yeah. Um, getting those families, you know, back on, on the right path. And so um, it's been really, really positive. And uh, we talked to him earlier. And he seems really encouraged by the conversations that he's having with leadership uh, in both the House and the Senate uh, about where his bill is going. He thinks that he's got a really good chance to get it through this year, which is good news for families that are facing these challenges. And I think one of the best parts about working with Representative Smith for this legislation is he has been so proactive a lot of times, you know, you're having to yeah. chase people down and yeah. say, hey, do you have what you need? Like, how can I, can I help you? You know, yeah. what's going on? Yeah. You know, Representative Smith is here like, hey, send me <laughs> this document. <laughs> this is what I need from you yeah. because he's just so committed to really helping the families that are sure. here. Well, that's, I think that's the Marine in him. He's very organized and he's very orderly and he is very, once he takes on a mission, he goes. Um, and he, um, he really has... Uh, stayed on top of it. Like he, he follows up with us on a regular basis. He checks in um, to kind of give us an update on where he is and kind of what he's doing. And if there's anything that uh, people in the system can do to help, right, reach out to legislators, reach out to people in the community. Um, and he really has just been a, a champion, a genuine champion mm -hmm. for children and families. And we're like really, really proud to have him on our team, have him on our side, yeah. you know. Jen, for you all, what does having that extra $500,000 mean for families here in Central Florida that are going through this struggle? Well, it definitely um, helps us to be able to serve the families much faster than we would in, what, in our normal process, you know, simply because we have a process that we need to follow that um, can take a little time. So this mm -hmm. helps us to, to have an all um to have an avenue where we can enroll them quickly and get services going quickly. Um, and I think it's going to provide a lot of relief also to our dependency case managers because they'll know that, that they can um, shoot them our way and get much quicker, quicker results. Mm -hmm. So Jill, what's a good way for people that are hearing this, they're interested <clears throat> in helping families experiencing homelessness in central Florida and want to be able to help us bring that money home. 
Is there any way that they're able to help support this legislation? Sure. Uh, the, the, the best way is to uh, really call Senate Appropriations Committees. And to and you can find that information online, flsenate.gov. And I'll make sure to post it in the podcast description Perfect. as yeah. well. Right. And so if they can find those lists online, they can reach out to their own uh, legislators, to, mm-hmm. their, to the people that represent them directly. Um, and tell them that they support uh, this this item, uh, this issue. But uh, the, one of the best things they can do is call Representative Smith and encar- keep encouraging him and thank him for for his efforts because he really is, um, you know, fighting really hard for it. And uh, the number one way to get something done in Tallahassee is to have a champion, to have a legislator who really believes in the work that you're doing, who really believes that there's an issue that needs to be addressed and fights for it. Mm -hmm. And that's 100% what he's been doing. And so showing him uh, support will help him uh, keep up that fight. Um, And then, of course, um, you can always reach out uh, to your local community-based care agency. So depending on which county you're in, you're served uh, by any number of uh, CBC lead agencies. In Orange, Osceola, and Seminole, you're served by Embrace Families. Um, and so, you know, if you are in uh, an area and you want to get involved, you can reach out to your uh, local CBC and talk about mentoring, talk about adoption, talk about how you can get involved in programs like Pathways that are meant to help the homeless. Um, there's so many different options at, at so many different levels of involvement for you to get involved. It's just, it's, uh, you just have to want to take that first step and, and make that phone call. Jen, what are some of the things that Pathways needs for people that do want to get involved here with the homelessness in Central Florida? Um, well, in terms of, of donations, I mean, we could really use household items. And a lot of times our families move into houses and they've lost everything um, in the process of homelessness. So they um, they could use some household items such as cleaning supplies, you know, bedding, air mm-hmm. mattresses, you know, those kind of things. Um, we could always use uh, some administrative help as well and following up with the applications that are filed and checking to see um, what the status is of the living situations for the families that might have been waiting for a while. So how can people that are interested find out more about you all? How can they get in touch? They can um, go to our website at pathwaystohome.org or they can call our administrative offices. Um, Can I give the number? Yeah, go ahead. At 407-268-6363. And so is there anything else that Pathways has going on or just any information that you would like to talk about the program and what you guys are doing? You can say no. It's not your question. No, I don't, I don't really have anything. I mean, she can edit the crap out of it. <laughs> is it 268-6363? Just a reminder that we're in all three counties, Orange, Osceola, and Seminole, and, you know, it, we, we're here to help. Are there sister programs across the state? Are there programs that are similar to this, or is this unique to us in Central Florida? The the uniqueness um, to Central Florida, I believe, is having the program housed within a, within a family of companies that um, serves child welfare, involved families. And so um, I think that part of is unique for sure. But rapid rehousing is is something that is a, na- a national, it's nationwide. So there are, are other providers that do provide it. We are the only one that does provide it in Seminole County, um, other than Seminole County government. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah. That's great. Thank you for being here. Thank you for all your hard work and all of your efforts on behalf of uh, you know, some really deserving families that just need a, a, a second chance, and we really appreciate you putting in all the effort that you do. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you, and thank you for your support.
well, we're here for you. So, y'all, make sure to go ahead if you're interested. The number, again, to reach out to Pathways to Home is 407-268-6363. Again, they are gladly accepting volunteers to help with some administrative tasks, as well as needing some household items for the families that are coming uh, into their program to just really help get them off to a strong start. So make sure to follow us on social media at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We are Future Effect FL. And if you'd like to share any news and events about your child welfare organization, or you'd like to suggest a topic or guest for future episodes, you can email us at dlevine at futureeffect.org. So y'all, what we do together today will create a bright, resilient tomorrow for all. This is the Future Effect. See you next time.